Well, could you open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 18, and uh, if you haven't had a chance, walk past where they're roasting the pig, and it really sticks to your clothes, and it smells really good. It's very enticing. So Matthew 18, as we continue in our study. I, uh, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I, um, the person I am, I blame on my mom. It's all my mom's fault. So if you have problems, it's all my mom's fault. She was the one. She was the one who introduced me to scary movies. She'd always have me watch scary movies with her. That's why my mind is the way it is. She would say, Chris, come on. Let's watch this. So she'd have me watch, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or Psycho. And one of her favorites was this movie called The Bad Seed. It's a great movie. It's about a murderous eight-year-old girl named Rhoda who killed a fellow student for a merit badge. It's a real uplifting movie. It's a good movie. But it was, it was interesting. The movie posed this question. The question was, and it's talking about this evil girl Rhoda, are people born bad, are they born bad, or is it a matter of how you're raised? Is that what makes somebody bad? And so over the years, it's always been a question that's interests me. So I'll do a lot of reading on legendary evil people like Hitler, Stalin, or serial killers like Manson, or Bundy, and, and even I, once in a while I think about some of the people I've encountered as a pastor, because once in a while you encounter some pretty dangerous people. And I've asked myself, is somebody born bad, or is it a matter of nurture? The upbringing, and I'm convinced, I think 95% is upbringing. When somebody's really bad, it's upbringing. I read a book a couple, a couple weeks ago that was talking about narcissistic personality disorder of serial killers, and it said that they all, they have three things in common, three things in common of most serial killers. The first thing is they, growing up, felt unwanted. Nobody wanted them. Words of affirmation, expressions of delight in who they were, were absent and non-existent. The second thing is they were completely unprotected by their parents. What I mean by that is they were either abused physically, sexually, or emotionally by a parent, a close relative, or a significant adult in their life, and so they just were vulnerable and taken advantage of. And the third problem is they never felt like they belonged anywhere. They were loners, and in their emotional isolation, they kind of like a great white shark, they became singular hunters to damage people in the same way they were damaged. As you probably heard, hurt people hurt people, and that's the point. So working for years as a youth pastor, I even found that the most uncooperative and usually out-of-control kids had one or two of these qualities. But man, you get all three where you're unwanted, where you're unprotected, and you don't belong. Wow, now you're talking about a dangerous powder keg of nurturing. Because I, I believe all children want to know in the depth of their bones just the opposite. Every kid in your house, I think every person in here, deep down we want to know, am I wanted? Am I wanted? Do people like me? Do I belong? Or am I a loner, pushed out on the margins? And am I safe? Because this world is dark, and it's cold. 
and we're vulnerable. And I would say each kid growing up needs both parents to constantly affirm those things. I think even the father's voice, it's interesting how today Joel is talking about fatherlessness. I think the father's voice weighs the heaviest. Good dads, good dads can speak life and confidence into children. Bad dads, who they can cause ruin. So, with this in mind, we enter into Matthew 18. God is going to reveal to us what kind of father he is and how he thinks about us, and he's going to speak into our lives on those three areas. He's going to tell us very specifically, you are wanted, you're protected, and you belong. So let's start with verse 5 of chapter 18. And it begins... Title of this is I gotta go the other way. This happens every time, Seth. Where is it? I gotta keep going. Seth, where is this? Stop. There it is. Thank you, Seth. All right. I like to give him a hard time. That was not my fault. That was all Seth's fault. Anyhow, 18.5. Jesus writes, whoever receives. One such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So this whole section comes right off the heels of a discussion we had two weeks ago. If you remember, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves, and the question was, who's the greatest? Who is the greatest disciple, the most important? And so Jesus, hearing them, takes a little child, lifts him up, and says, if anybody wants to be the greatest, he must become like this little child, if he wants to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus was saying, he wasn't necessarily referring to the child as much as he was to the disciple, to you. And he's saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be humble and trust me. Like a child is humble and trusts their mother and father. It's about humility and vulnerability. 
That's what following God is all about. And so, when you adopt a humble demeanor, it makes you vulnerable. Especially in a world that seems hostile and cold towards those who believe in God. It's scary to put your trust in God. It really is. And I think that's why a lot of people don't. Because they want to control their life. They don't like being vulnerable. So God knows this. He knows this. And that's what this whole passage is about. He's a good dad, and he wants you to know that if you give yourself completely to him, like a little child, you will find in him an incredible father. He's incredible. So what we're going to do throughout this section, we're going to talk about how he wants us. He's going to protect us. And he wants us to know we belong. But he begins by talking about this issue of the little ones. If you notice in verse 5, it says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, he uses the word in verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. He uses the phrase in verse 14. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So the first question before we go any further is, who's he talking about? Who are these little ones? There are two ways to interpret this. I'd say some people right off the bat, it's pretty obvious. He puts a little child in front and he goes, if anybody, if anybody harms one of these little ones, one of these little kids, so he's prob- probably just talking about little children in general. Babies, infants, toddlers, handicapped, foster kids, orphans, special needs, they all have a special place in the heart of God, which I think they do. But I think sometimes we over-sentimentalize what's being written here. We, we get kind of warm and fuzzy. If I hug a baby, then am I hugging Jesus too? If I open an orphanage, does it guarantee me quick passage into heaven? Because some people really believe that. Because I take care of the orphans, therefore I'm getting into heaven. Because that's what Jesus says here. If you receive one of these little ones, you're receiving me. But I've got to tell you, Jesus isn't, he's not sentimental in a sense. He doesn't, he doesn't create hallmark religion. He's very specific. And if you notice in this passage, the context is, he's not necessarily talking about little kids. He's talking about humble followers. The whole time he says, specifically in verse 3, I say to you, unless you turn, you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you do turn, you become like a child. So you become one of these little children. That's why you have the word whosoever in verse 5 and 6. Whoever receives a child receives me. Whoever causes. Whoever is whoever does this. So you could say who Jesus is referring to when he talks about little ones is Disciples. Go to John chapter 1. I think this, in my mind, this is one of the most important verses to know, to memorize. This is a foundation verse of understanding when it comes to Christianity. John chapter 1. And I want to start verse 11. It talks about, this is an introduction to John, and he's given an overview, and he's giving Jesus' mission in a very general way. 
And he says in verse 11, he's saying, talking about Jesus, that he has come to his own, meaning he's come to earth to reach the Jews. But his own people did not receive him. They didn't want him. Here, Jesus comes to save his own, but they don't want him. So what does he do? He goes to other people. And verse 12 says, all who did receive him, to those who did want him. How do I know I want him? I believe on his name. That's what it says right there. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the authority or the power to become children of God. So if you have believed in Jesus by faith, God has said from this verse, you are his little one. You're his little one. He's your dad. So you could say it like this. If you are a true disciple, you are a child. And if you are a child, Jesus says he will never leave you as an orphan. But those who are not his children, as John says later in John 3, you are condemned already. You are outside of his protection. Paul actually says people before they are saved are dead in trespasses and sins. Colossians 1 calls this alienation. Alienation means we feel by birth, a distancing from God. He's up there, I'm down here, and I, I feel abandoned spiritually. Which leads us to our first point. There is this deep feeling in most people that I'm, I'm unwanted. That's what alienation does. Alienation feels like you are not wanted by your creator. You're disconnected. And out of this feeling comes a whole host of questions. Why am I here? Why am I even here? What is the meaning of life? When does life begin? In the womb or when scientists tell us? Who am I and where did I come from? All of these are coming from this original state of alienation and disconnection with God. And it's in us. And we all want to know, am I really wanted? Does God even want me? I think some of you in here really don't know. If I said, does God really love you? I don't know. I was reading this article. It was talking about why do the younger generations of people so obsessive with social media? Why are they? And this writer says, our society now believes that a large number of likes on social media is equivalent to a person's worth and significance. Self-concept is now determined by a comparison-based measurement that forces people to focus solely on physical or social attributes of other people, and then I compare myself to them. And the ultimate goal of social media is to create this illusion of perfection. It's causing you to want to think you can be perfect. And if I reach that, then people will like me. So self-worth is dependent on how other people online view me. So to create perfection, people post pictures to hide their blemishes, perfect body shapes, flawless hair. They always have to have a cool friend group that they're associated with, their most adventurous lifestyle. And then you have all these people that have come out and said, I'm an influencer, whatever that means. Did you ever notice online, everybody's happy. They're always happy. And so everybody's happy, and you're at home miserable, and you're always like, why am I miserable, and everybody's always happy? 
Do you ever notice on TV commercials, everybody's happy. And then when I eat that same piece of pizza at home, I'm not that happy. Why is everybody happy eating Domino's pizza on TV, you know? Because they're sucking you in trying to say, you are not worth it until you buy what we have or until you look like me. You've been sold a lie, and it's eating you alive, and you don't feel wanted. The article continues, the result of all of this is that people now believe that social popularity is the primary way to determine truth about yourself. To be accepted online is more important than actually being a good person. I'll read that again. To be accepted online now is more important than actually being a good person. This has resulted in massive self-image problems because trends and opinions are always changing and if a person doesn't keep up with those changes, they may conclude that they are no longer important. How about you? Do you do that? Are you caught up in that? Do you compare yourselves with others? Is that how you figure out if you're important or you're valuable? Do you feel like you have to keep improving to be like Online, I know, I know a large portion of you do. Because as your pastor, my job is to stalk you online. And I do a good job of it. And I know what you're posting. Get over yourself! But I'm here to tell you one thing. Here's what I'm here to tell you. If you are God's child, if you are God's child, you are wanted. He really, 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 really likes you. I'm not going to use the word love, because a lot of times, yeah, I know what love is. But you know how you know if you're loved? You're liked, and he likes you exactly how you are. He made you. And it doesn't matter how good you look on social media. It doesn't matter how rich or successful you are, or even how smart you are. All it takes, all it takes, is to receive his son by faith, and you're his. You're his. Not only that, he ple he's pleased to know, to have people know you're his. Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child, so that means whoever welcomes somebody who clearly is a disciple, who's clearly my child, whoever receives one such child in my name, they receive me. Like, you carry his name on you, and he that's truly significant. You have his name. You're his. You know how this feels if you're a parent. You are so proud of your kids. Whether they do, whatever they do. And you want the world to know them. And when somebody really likes your kid, you kind of, you accept them in too. And that's sort of what God's saying here. Now the next point is going to come directly from the first point. But the next point is heavy. Some people say it's some of the heaviest stuff Jesus ever said. And it's the second part. The second part is people in this world do feel unprotected. But if I carry God's name, if I'm really his, Jesus is saying that those who abuse and provoke a child of God to sin are in big trouble because God protects his own. And it's hard to believe this because this world is scary. It seems like it's out to get us. feels like we're vulnerable. But you have to know. 
your God, your dad, is a, not just a good dad, he's a strong dad. He's not just a strong dad, he's a jealous dad. He's not just a jealous dad, but he's a fierce dad. And he has you in the palm of his hand. Look at verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Do you understand what he's doing here? He's warning people. You don't mess with my kids. You're going to mess with one of mine? It'd be a whole lot better for you to drown quickly than uh, find yourself in my hand. Look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So you could say it like this. We aren't unprotected. We are protected by God and by his angels. It says in uh, Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So God has angels camping around those who are his. Hebrews 1.14 says, I am not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation. So he sends angels to serve those who are his children. This is uh, where theologians get the idea from guardian angels. Some theologians believe that guardian angels follow children all the time until they're saved and they keep protecting them. I think the idea here is that God gives angels specific assignments after a person's acceptance by faith and they watch over. Do I believe that God sends angels to watch over us? Absolutely. Do you know how I know that? Mark Rawson Jr., raise your hand in the back. That's how I know that. I <laughs> he should be dead a hundred times. I used to have him in my youth group. I saw him go down a whole river, almost fell over a 2,000-foot cliff. All of a sudden, he he's flying down. He stopped. Man, if you would have died, his mom would have killed him. So. <laughs> so do we have angels? Absolutely. God says it in the Bible. Like, look at, look at verse 10 again. I tell you that heaven, their angels, always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. Does, does the, is the Bible true? We live in a weird world where there's other things and things we see. There's angels and demons. Did you know, however, there's two-thirds more? There's two, there's, so you could divide angels up in a third. Two-thirds of them are good. One-third of them are bad. And they're demons. But two-thirds of them are good. Would you rather have an army with two-thirds strength or one-third strength? Then why are we so scared of the one-third strength army? It's like we're terrified by it. We have the two-thirds strength. In our army, one soldier can kill 100,000 men. Pretty strong army. Not a bad deal. But I don't think you really believe this. It's kind of like fairy tale. It says it right here. Anyhow, I, I love that. I, let's keep going. I want to bring your attention to verse 7 and 9. This is, uh, this is a warning. It is the scariest warning Jesus has given in the Bible. And listen to what it says. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. Woe to the one by whom temptations come. Okay, so what does that first of all mean? Well, this word to sin in this passage 
is not necessarily the word of a specific sin, it's the word of sin as a stumbling block. It's the word scandalon, meaning it's a stumbling block. If you engage in it, it's going to destroy your life. So it's a lifestyle. This is not necessarily addressing specific sins that it is talking about. Be careful of trying to persuade someone who's a Christian to engage in a lifestyle that is going to destroy them or ruin them or pull them away from their love for God. Be very careful with that. One scholar interprets it like this. If you entice someone to adopt a lifestyle or devilish habits, God's wrath will be poured upon you. And look at verse 8. And this is why, and this is how serious God is. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, and that means if it's causing you to do the habitual, ruinous lifestyle, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so you could basically say like this. It's kind of scary, but he said, would you rather amputation or damnation? Well, I don't want amputation, but damnation is a whole lot worse. So stop it. That's his point. Take sinning seriously, because hell is deadly serious. That's the point. What are some lifestyle choices that people tempt other people to get into? And I've seen, I've seen lifestyle choices specifically that are aimed at Christians to get them joining in, which ruins lives. And I'm just going to go down this list real quick. There's four of them. But here's what our culture has been pushing. Overt sexualization. Like it's ridiculous. Can we stop it? Can we stop identifying everybody by what they like to do in bed? Can we just stop it? It's destroying it. discrediting scripture, there is a new movement in Christianity. Say, oh, you really can't trust these scriptures. They're out of date. Come on. They're, they're just stories told. Be very careful believing that because Jesus says that not one of these words, not one jot or tittle of this Bible, which is a Hebrew script, will ever be washed away. It's true. Loving money, I think we do... I, like, I think there's generational sins. I think probably the sin of slavery was massive back in the day when we founded this. But I think each, each generation has a sin they don't see as deadly as it is. I think this love of money is a deadly sin. I think some people even say the more money you have means you're a better Christian. Is that true? Careful of that. And then also diminishing Jesus. We live in a culture where tolerance means Jesus is one God you can pick from on a post. If you like Jesus, great. If you don't, great. No, Jesus is God. He is God. So, God not only wants you, God not only is watching over you, but he has brought you into an incredible family. However, I would say this is where alienation hits most people. Most people, if they're honest, they kind of feel alone. That's what alienation does. That's what sin does. It separates us from God and it separates us from people and we feel like no one cares, no one sees me, and woe is me. 
I think one of the biggest consequences actually from the last two years of this COVID quarantining and this fear mongering, and you guys, fear is an industry, you know that? They want you scared. It's an industry. And so what they want you to also do is isolate. Because if you're isolated, they got you. And isolation kills on every level, emotionally, physically, and even financially. And when you're isolated, you feel like these, this, the world are wolves that are, that are circling you, ready to pounce on you, bite you, and tear you apart. And nobody cares. Nobody cares. I'd say some of you feel distance from each other, from the church. Especially people listening online. A lot of people are listening online and saying, I don't think anybody knows I'm here in my home alone. And you get this feeling that nobody cares, no one sees. Woe is me. There's this deep longing to be known by others. And isolation makes it a hundred times worse. And sometimes when people feel isolated, they'll come to, a, they'll come to like to church. And they'll feel isolated from church. So what they do is they kind of get mad at the church. And instead of trying to engage the church, they try to prove a point by distancing themselves from the church. As if they're hurting the church. But the truth is they're only hurting themselves. And making that isolation a hundred times worse. Because truthfully, we all feel like we are not on the inside. We all feel like we're on the edges. That's why Proverbs said you want friends, make yourself friendly. That's what it says. You belong, this is where 12 through 14 come in. You belong so much that when you go missing, God will move the world to get you back. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of that one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's basically saying, you belong and he will go after you. This uh, same analogy of the sheep is also used in Luke, but it's used for people who are outside of the church, non-believers, and Jesus goes to look for the non-believer. Here it's used for people in the church who have strayed from the body, and Jesus even cares about you and will go after you. In John, he says, I know my sheep. He knows you. There's one thing I'd say that really breaks a pastor's heart. It's when people leave because they feel unwanted. I think it's Satan's most powerful tool. But if we're God's children, by default, we are insiders. We belong. Satan wants to keep you wandering, and God wants you back. I remember reading a, a book about the USS Indianapolis. It was a warship that brought the atomic bomb to Japan. And after it dropped it, started heading back, and it was sunk in the Pacific Ocean. 1,500 soldiers went into the sea, Navy men went into the sea. 800 of them died because they were out there for three days. Nobody knew they had the secret mission. Out of those 800 that died, a third of them were eaten by sharks. So that means over 200 and some 70, 280 men were eaten by sharks. And they have a book about some of the personal experiences about that. And one guy said, what we would do 
is we as soldiers would link arms and get in a circle, and we would, when sharks would come around our group, we'd kick them in the nose, we'd keep kicking them, because they weren't big, they weren't big great whites, they're smaller tiger sharks, we'd just kick them and they'd go away, we'd stay in a group, see, but then every once in a while somebody would fall asleep or get really tired and they would fall asleep and float away, when they'd float away on their own, they'd be grabbed and pulled under, and I feel that's what it's like in the world, when you separate yourself, Satan knows how to isolate you and destroy you. You belong. If you are God's child, fear not. You are wanted, you are protected, and you belong. I, um, I was really blessed to have a, have a dad that was very clear on that point. But he had six kids, and my, my older brother, a lot of times, he had a pretty troubled, what I'd say, teen, the 20, 21-year-old. He would always take off, and get upset a little bit at my dad, and start arguments. Remember, after one argument, I went walking with my dad. We'd go walking in the woods, throw sticks to our dog. I'd say, what? I'd say, what is it? Why does he do that? He goes, Chris, there's two ways to live. You can live life easy, or you can choose to live life hard. Your brother chooses to live life hard. He likes to cause problems. He likes to get, he allows himself to be hurt quickly and everything is a slight. Where Chris, you live life easy. You're humble. And you listen to what I have to say. And I think that is exactly what a lot of people do. You can live life easy, really trust that God is a good father. I mean, really take him at his word. Trust the church. Don't always think they're against you. You can live life easy or you can live life hard. When you live life hard, everybody's against you. Nobody knows about you. Nobody cares. That's your imagination. That's not true. J.K. Chesterton, he was this writer. He weighed about 280 pounds, lived in England, and he would write newspaper articles and people would criticize his newspaper articles. And one day he just decided to go walking in London. Put on his top hat, had a cane, and he was heavy. And he started walking on the street, thinking everybody's against him. He started looking around. He stopped on the corner, and he looked around, and he realized, you know what? Nobody even knows I'm here. I don't think people care about me and are angry with me as much as I think they are. I think a lot of people really feel like people are against them. They're always talking bad about me. And I haven't been to church in years, but if I come back, they're not going to want me. No, people don't do that. We're all stuck in our own lives. We're being consumed by our own lives. We just need to love each other, trust each other, share your lives with each other, because you're not alone. 